there's no profounder truth than we can declare about God than that He is holy. The very beginning of the Lord's Prayer, remember how it begins? Our Father who art in heaven, what? Holy be your name, hallowed be your name, to declare that God is indeed holy. And we should meditate on that and reflect on that as we begin um, this sermon this morning. Would you open your Bibles to Acts chapter 5? For those of you who know what Acts chapter 5 is about, as you turn there, um, you may find this passage on page number uh, 948. If you don't have a Bible, we encourage you to open the Bible that's in front of you, uh, 948. Um, I will be reading from the ESV translation this morning. Uh, but for those of you, as you're finding your way there, um, someone asked me, are you really going to preach from Acts 5? I said, yeah. It's in the Bible. <laughs> for those of you also who are perhaps um, visiting us this morning, we are finally back into our Acts series um, because of Easter. And then last week I was out. I'm so grateful for the work that, uh, that our brother um, from Elgin, uh, Todd Terry from Covenant Life Fellowship. Um, he preached for us last Sunday. I was blessed by his sermon, hearing it online. And, um, but it's great to be back this morning and to be back in the book of Acts. So I encourage you, open the scripture. Let us read the book of Acts, uh, chapter 5. Here's the word of the Lord. We'll, we're going to read from verse 1 to 16. But a man named Ananias with his wife, Sapphira, sold a piece of property, and with his wife's knowledge, he kept back for himself some of the proceeds and brought only a part of it and laid it at the apostles' feet. But Peter said, Ananias, why has Satan filled your heart to lie to the Holy Spirit and to keep back for yourself part of the proceeds of the land? While it remained unsold, did it not remain your own? And after it was sold, was it not at your disposal? Why is it that you have contrived this deed in your heart? You have not lied to men, but to God. When Ananias heard these words, he fell down and breathed his last. And great fear came upon all who heard of it. The young men rose and wrapped him up and carried him out and buried him. After an interval of about three hours, his wife came in, not knowing what had happened. And Peter said to her, Tell me whether you sold the land for so much. And she said, Yes, for so much. But Peter said to her, How is it that you have agreed together to test the Spirit of the Lord? Behold, the feet of those who have buried your husband are at the door, and they will carry you out. Immediately, she fell down at his feet and breathed her last. When the young men came in, they found her dead, and they carried her out and buried her beside her husband. And great fear came upon the whole church and upon all who heard of these things. Now many signs and wonders were regularly done among the people by the hands of the apostles, and they were all together in Solomon's portico. None of the rest there joined them, but the people held them in high esteem, and more than ever. Believers were added to the Lord, multitudes of both men and women, so that they even carried out the sick into the streets and laid them on coats and mats that Peter came by at least his shadow might fall on some of them. The people also gathered from the towns around Jerusalem, bringing the sick and those afflicted with unclean spirits, and they were all healed. This is the word of the Lord for us this morning. Would you bow with me in a word of prayer? Let's ask the Lord by His Spirit to give us 
the knowledge of his word so that we might take it to heart. Would you bow with me in a word of prayer? Our gracious Father, we praise you for the work that you have revealed to us of how you have acted in the early days of the church in Jerusalem. We pray now by your Spirit that you would speak to our hearts. Apply this word to our hearts. We pray, O Holy Spirit, in the name of Christ and for his glory. Amen. Friends, Acts 5. How many of you are shocked by the story? Some of you are raising your hand. How many of you uh, feel uncomfortable with the story? All right. For the next question, don't raise your hand. How many of you feel embarrassed about the story being in the Bible? How many of you feel that if this story got out, people wouldn't come to church? How many of you are afraid to bring this story ever to a new convert? Honestly, think, who would come to a church where God kills people on the spot? And yet this happened. And did you pick up on what this event produced in the church? Great fear. Twice in this passage we are told, look at verse 5, and great fear came upon all who heard of it. Look at verse 11, and great fear came upon the whole church and upon all who heard of these things. So I've entitled my message this morning, Great Fear Upon the Whole Church. Great Fear Upon the Whole Church. Would you like to be a member of this kind of church? Honestly, if you're here this morning and perhaps you're visiting and you're looking for churches, would you ever consider the church in Jerusalem at this time? I mean, can you imagine going to church the Sunday after this happened? And the pastor gives an invitation to those who would consider joining the church. Would you join? As difficult as this event was, friends, Luke included it for our instruction that we may learn something about the presence of God in his church. But the presence of God in his church is a serious business. The presence of God in his church is a serious deal. And it caused great fear upon the whole church. Why? Because of how God chose to deal with with blatant sin. This morning I have two points that I want to share with you that I think this passage is teaching us, is bringing us to, to recognize and to realize. The first point is the demonic nature of sin. The demonic nature of sin. Second point, the divine nature of the church. The divine nature of the church. Great fear upon the whole church. Why? Because of the demonic nature of sin. Second, because of the divine nature of the church. Let's look at each of these points. The demonic nature of sin. When Peter confronts Ananias, he asks him three questions and then gives him a conclusion. The three questions reveal what was truly going on in this deception. Peter asks these questions not to get information out of Ananias. Peter asks these questions to give us information about what was going on. Big difference. 
And here are the three questions. They're informed to tell us, they're aimed to inform us and to tell us what was really going on. Here's the first question. Ananias, why has Satan filled your heart to lie to the Holy Spirit? Wow. Humanly speaking, we could say, it's just a lie, Peter. But Peter is able to look at this and do a spiritual x-ray of this lie. And what he finds behind the surface should give us great chills. It should give us a great fear. Behind Ananias's lie was the work of Satan. Why has Satan filled your heart to lie? This diagnosis is even more scary when we remember the context of what was going on prior to this event. Remember chapter 4? I know it, it was a few weeks ago when we preached chapter 4. But remember in chapter 4, believers pray together. It was after Peter and John got released from prison. And Peter and John go and tell the church the great work of God. And the church gets together and prays a beautiful prayer between verses 23 and 30 in chapter 4. A beautiful prayer. And then comes verse 31. And it tells us, And when they had prayed, the place in which they were gathered together was shaken. And they were all filled with the Holy Spirit. What a great picture. They were all Every member, we're all filled with the Holy Spirit. But in a church where all members, all believers were filled with the Holy Spirit, in that church there was a couple, Ananias and Sapphira. They were filled by something else, not by the Holy Spirit, but by Satan. Satan filled his heart to lie. Oh, dear friends, only the Bible gives us this kind of diagnosis and explanation behind an act of lying. It's a work of Satan filling our hearts. Friends, human wisdom and human nature will never give you this diagnosis on lying. Never. But this is how the Bible describes it. Friend, apart from divine revelation, each of us would have a very low view of our sin. Apart from God's revelation, none of us, none of us would make a big deal of any of our sins. But God's revelation opens our eyes to see the true nature of sin. Even the sin of lying. It is demonic. Sin has its ultimate source in Satan. God's word reveals to us the ultimate source of sin. It's Satan. The next question Peter asks tells us that this generosity was not forced at all. Verse 4, while it remained unsold, Peter said, did it not remain your own? And after it was sold, was it not at your disposal? In other words, Ananias, no one asked you. No one forced you. You didn't have to do this. And even if you wanted to sell the land, the whole price of the land was yours. You could have done with that money whatever you wanted to. One commentator said that Ananias and Sapphira gave the money 
not because they cared for the poor, but because they cared to fatten their own egos. So that even their generosity was totally self-centered. Their generosity was more about their reputation than about truly caring for the needs of the church. And then Peter asks the final diagnosing question. Verse 4, Why is it that you have contrived this deed in your heart? Why is it that you have contrived this deed in your heart? Now, even though this was the work of Satan as the ultimate source of, of, of this act because Satan filled the heart, even though it started with Satan, Ananias is still responsible. It was he who contrived this deed. And he did it where? In his heart. Oh, friends, how true this is about any sinful action. How true this is about any sinful action. Before we commit any sinful action, there is a sinful act in the heart. Before we commit any sinful action, there's a sinful act in the heart by which we take sides with the kingdom of darkness. We start believing Satan's lie. We buy into his deceptive promises. And we think no one will find out. Or we convince ourselves that even if they do find out, it's not a big deal. There's nothing wrong with it. These are, this, these are the kind of explanations that go through our minds as we consider whether or not we should side with the kingdom of darkness or with the kingdom of God. So we act based on what we decide in our hearts. Why is it that you have committed this deed in your heart? Oh, how penetrating this question is. It informs us. Friends, it informs us that before we sin in our actions, we sin in our hearts. After these three penetrating questions, Peter delivers a verdict. Verse 4, You have lied not to men, but to God. And Ananias may have believed that uh, his actions were directly uh, only at people, but he was wrong. And he was going to find out about that in a very drastic way. His lie was ultimately directed against God. And friends, this is true about every sin we commit. When we wrong someone, we act not just against them, but against God. When we rebel, when we cheat someone, when we lie, when we slander, we act not simply against another person, but against God. And friends, no human wisdom will tell you this. Only by divine revelation we are informed that our sin is actually an attack against God. Sin at its core is not only demonic. Sin at its core is also an attack on God. How do we know this is so? Because God tells us. The Bible reveals this about our sin. It takes faith to believe this about sin. A friend, I wonder, my friend, this morning, if you believe this. If you believe that sin in its core is demonic. If you believe that sin in its core, it's an attack on God. Verse 5 tells us that when Ananias heard these things, he fell down and breathed his last. What a tragedy. What a tragedy. Not the death. It's not the death that's the biggest tragedy here. What a tragedy to have these words as the last words spoken about you. That's a bigger tragedy. You have lied not to men, but to God. And then God killed him on the spot. No chance for repentance in this case of Ananias. No chance for repentance. And some might say, is this fair? Samuel, is this fair? 
Is this a God we worship? The answer is yes to both questions. It is fair, and it is a God we worship. And here's why this is fair. Because the Bible tells us that one sin is enough to bring us death. One sin is enough to bring us death. Do you believe this? Are you able to accept this truth? One sin is enough to bring us death. Friend, if, 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 you're, if this truth troubles you, I can understand why. It's just one thing, right? Humanly speaking, when we put our human standard to this picture, it's not that big of a deal. Humanly speaking, I can understand why we would have a hard time with this truth. One truth, one sin is enough to bring death. But God reveals to us in His Word that this is so. And I only have to point you back to the Garden of Eden. When Adam and Eve, it just took one disobedience to bring death. It took one act of rebellion against the Lord to bring death. And in their case, they brought death not only upon themselves, but upon the entire human race. Friends, that's how Scripture begins. It confronts us with this hard reality that from God's standard, one sin is enough to bring death. Oh, dear friends, this is the penalty for sin. Romans 6 reminds us, for the wages of sin, not sins, the wages of sin is death. So Ananias receives God's judgment. He's cut off from among the people. And friends, this truth is not new in the book of Acts. I want to remind you back of when Peter preached his second sermon in Acts chapter 3. We were there a few weeks ago. Turn your Bibles to, ch to chapter 3 of the book of Acts. Remember the crowds saw how Peter and John healed a crippled man. They were amazed because this crippled man had been crippled from birth. They were amazed. So this big crowd gathers together and Peter gets to preach before them about Jesus and about the resurrection and about what Jesus has done and about what now these people should do now that Jesus has resurrected. And look at chapter 3, verses 19 to 23. What does Peter preach? What, Peter, what people should do about this Jesus and about their sins? Peter said, Repent, therefore, and turn back, that your sins may be blotted out, that times of refreshing may come from the presence of the Lord, and that he may send the Christ appointed for you, Jesus, whom heaven must receive until the time for restoring all the things about which God spoke by the mouth of his holy prophets long ago. Moses said, The Lord God will raise up for you a prophet like me from your brothers. You shall listen to him in whatever he tells you, and it shall be that every soul who does not listen to that prophet shall be destroyed from the people. Wow. This is the kind of stuff that Peter was preaching in those early days. It was a message of warning that everyone who does not listen to Christ shall be destroyed from the people, whether or not they believe they're Christians. Now, the death of Ananias tells us that God is serious about that warning, which was given by Moses which was preached by Peter. Sin brings death. Everyone who does not listen to Christ shall be destroyed from among the people. Can we believe that? Well, we may not, but Acts 5 leads us to a point we have no choice but to believe because it's serious. Fred, if you're not a Christian, or even if you are, 
This truth should give us great chills, great fears. God takes sin seriously because sin is demonic in its ultimate source and because sin is an attack on God. Therefore, sin brings us death. And our only hope, our only hope in the face of sin is to turn away from it, believing that our only hope to escape the judgment of God is to embrace Christ and to believe that His death paid for the penalty of our rebellion, that His death, by His death, the power of sin was broken in us. And one day, one day we have the hope that at His coming, the power of sin, the penalty of sin, and the presence of sin will be all put away. Friend, by this faith in Christ, this faith in Christ, what He has done for us at the cross, this faith in Christ is not just an intellectual acknowledgement. It's not just an intellectual assessment. Um, this faith brings us into a new submission to Christ so that we begin to follow His ways. Now, I've got to tell you a secret. It's only when God gives us His new life, only then are we able to follow in His ways. It's only when God gives us His new life from above that we are enabled to follow in His ways. So I plead with you today, if you are still living in rebellion against God, or if you're still living far away from God, or if you're still living in ignorance of God, or if, you're just, if you've had a fallout with God and you haven't been back with God in a long time, I plead with you today, turn back to Him, asking Him to give you a new life from above. And when this happens, God will turn you away from your wickedness. Perhaps there are some people here this morning who call themselves Christians. But this morning, you're cherishing sin in your heart. You're toying with sin. Or perhaps you're enslaved by it to the point where you feel you can't get out of it. Oh, friend, I pray that the truth about the demonic nature of sin would alert you to the great danger you are in. Don't let Satan fill your heart with his promises. He is the father of lies. Turn to Christ. He's the way, the truth, and the life. And through his death and resurrection, the power of sin has been broken. The demonic nature of sin. Second truth that this passage in Acts 5 teaches us is not only about the demonic nature of sin, but about the divine nature of the church. The divine nature of the church. When Peter asks Sapphira the question, he asks in verse 9. Look at verse 9 with me. Look at what Peter asks. How is it that you have agreed together to test the Spirit of the Lord? Again, this is not a human explanation of sin, but a divine explanation. In their choices to lie together and to deceive the apostles and the whole church, Ananias and Sapphira actually tested the Spirit of the Lord. This description of, of testing the Spirit of the Lord is a strong echo of what the Israelites have done in, in the wilderness when they tested God through rebellion time and again. Their rebellion at times was directed against Moses and his leadership. At times it was directed against God because of the difficulties God allowed them to go through the wilderness. They looked at their difficulties and said, well, we didn't sign up for this. We want to go back to Egypt. So when God was with them in their wilderness, they said, we would rather be back in Egypt than with God in wilderness. What an affront to God. What an affront to God. At other times, the people of Israel simply disobeyed the commands of the Lord. The Lord said, don't gather the manna on Sabbath. And here's a guy who goes, goes out and gathers the manna on Sabbath. The people ask, Lord, what should we do with him? And God said, kill him. He disobeyed my word. 
And then time and again, the people of Israel say, well, um, we, shouldn't go, uh, we shouldn't go into Canaan because the people, they are so huge. And God had told them, I'm giving this to you. And they said, no, we're not going. So God says, all right, for every day you have spied the land, you will spend that a year in the wilderness, 40 years. And the people say, oh, no, we're going to go spy the land. We're going to go take over the land. And God says, don't. So they do. God kills them. Moses told him, why aren't you listening to the word of the Lord? If he says it, do it. But they didn't. And they were simple acts. They were not hard things. But their hearts were just proving, no, they were not going to listen to what the Lord says. Why? Because they thought they were in charge. They thought they could do whatever they want to. And they forgot that the Lord is in the camp. The Lord is among them. So the book of Numbers, go read it. It's beautiful to show us how deeply corrupted our hearts are. And in, in so simple things, we often grumble against the Lord and test Him. It's a sad book. But it's, a, it's a powerful book to tell us how deeply corrupted our nature is. And then... This kind of testing against the Lord shows up in the early days of, of the church, in the church in Jerusalem. In the, this couple, Ananias and Sapphira, they tested the Spirit of the Lord. How? How did they test the Spirit of the Lord? In at least two ways, I think. One, they were convinced they could get away with their sin. They were convinced they could get away with their sin. How do we know that? Well, they probably thought something like this. Not every, no one will know. No one will know. And since they're already giving money to the church, they may have convinced themselves that this was going to be fine. After all, they're giving half of the money to the church or whatever percentage. Right? So they assume there's no judgment. And by assuming that there will be no judgment, they provoke God to judge. This is how they tested the Spirit of the Lord. They provoke God to judge by assuming there will be no judgment. Now, how do I know that they assumed there will be no judgment? Look at verse 7. After an interval of about three hours, his wife came in not knowing what had happened. And Peter said to her, Tell me whether you sold the land for so much. And she said, yes, for so much. Now, here's what I wonder from these verses. I wonder if Sapphira had known what had happened to her husband. I wonder if her answer would have been different. Because Luke wants to tell us that after an interval of about three hours, his wife came in not knowing what had happened. She didn't know. And that's helpful for us because it tells us that Sapphira too was convinced that she could get away with this lie. She had no problem lying directly in Peter's face. Now, had she known, had she known that the judgment of God was lurking over her head by a thread? Had she known that the judgment of God was lurking over her head in the mere choice of saying a yes or a no? She may have answered differently. By answering yes, she insisted upon the lie. And this tells us in the most clear way that she assumed there was no judgment for her sin. So she willingly and deliberately engaged in sin. And thus she tested the Lord. She provoked God to judge by assuming there will be no judgment for her blatant choice of sinning. Oh, friend, I wonder if you too are misled 
to act sinfully because somehow you believe that there is no judgment against sin. Perhaps you, you think that God's grace covered all your sins, past, present, and future, and therefore you conclude that God is going to be fine if you're willingly and deliberately choosing to sin in the future. Oh, how misguided and wrong that thinking is. Titus 2, 11 tells us that the grace of God that brings salvation has appeared to all men. It teaches us to say no to ungodliness and worldly passions and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in this present age. The grace of God teaches us to say no to ungodliness. Oh, friend, I wonder if your own thinking about sin has been twisted so that you too live with the impression that you can get away with your sin. Be aware of testing the Lord with your deliberate sin. The second way of testing the Lord, the second way in which Ananias and Sapphira tested the Lord was that they had the wrong view of the church. They had the wrong view of the church. If the church is ultimately about people, then they just have to manage to work around people. Just fool them. Just tell them something different than in reality. Nobody will know. You can live your private life. But if the church is ultimately about God, you cannot run off with your sin, no matter how small it is. Because the church is a community where God, by His Holy Spirit, dwells with His people. The church is not a place where you can run off with your sin. Not because we are perfect, but because the church is a place where God dwells and He is perfect. Instead of trying to get away with your sin, the church is a place where the living God calls us to bring our sins, to confess our sins, to forsake our sins, to encourage one another to go and sin no more, to watch over one another, to point to the promises of the gospel that in Christ, not only the penalty of sin has been paid for, but the power of sin has been broken. Friends, the gospel of Jesus Christ is the message that the blood of Christ not only paid for the penalty of our sin, but also broke the power of sin. This is the great news. This is the great hope we have in the gospel because none of us, no other human being in this universe has the ability to break the power of sin. But Jesus does. And he did. Because of Christ, we actually have the freedom not to sin anymore. But if you're like me, you misuse that freedom all the time. I do. I would rather follow my sinful nature rather than the new nature God has implanted in me. So I misuse my freedom. Friends, even when is, that's the case, we are called by the Lord, by the Holy God, who dwells in the midst of His people to turn back to Him, to turn away from our sin and to turn to Christ. Friends, the church is not a place where we would pretend that there is no sin. The church is not a place where we ignore our sin or hide it. No, the church is a place where we bring our sin where we confess our sin, and the power, by the power of God, we forsake our sin. Why? Because the church is a dwelling place of God, the holy God. When confronted by Peter, Sapphira failed to bring up her sin, to confess it, and to forsake it. So God acted in judgment against her as a reminder that God was indeed present in that church. 
This act of divine judgment, friends, represents not God's distance, but God's nearness. It represents God's presence among His people. When the people of God are closest to the glory of God, the judgment of God is more profound on this side of eternity. When the people of God are closest to the glory of God, the judgment of God is more profound on this side of eternity. Joshua 7, two illustrations. Joshua 7, after entering Canaan, after conquering um, Jericho, someone in Israel's army steals a garment. Friends, a garment. And the judgment of God comes upon them. They lose battles and their people suffering. Why such a big prize for stealing one garment? Throughout the Old Testament, we see many times the people of Israel doing more and worse sins, yet not nearly were they punished as, as hard as this time. Why? Because the presence of the Lord was with them in a special way as they were beginning to conquer the land. Leviticus chapter 10. God orders Aaron how um, the priest should offer, uh, bring the offerings before the presence of the Lord. So Aaron's oldest two sons are chosen to be the first ones who are going to run through this together. This is the, this is the first time that the, the, the worship of God goes live on air. A glorious event. And they are the first ones chosen to do this. But they bring unauthorized fire before the Lord. They become creative in the worship of God and bring something to God that God had not commanded them. And God kills them on the spot. Why? Lord, why do you have to be so harsh? Look at Leviticus 10, the passage I was read earlier by, by Matthew in our service. Now Nadab and Abihu, the sons of Aaron, each took his censer and put fire in it and laid incense on it and offered unauthorized fire before the Lord, which he had not commanded them. And fire came out from before the Lord and consumed them, and they died before the Lord. Why? The answer is verse 3. Then Moses said to Aaron, This is what the Lord has said among, the, among those who are near me, I will be sanctified. And before all the people, I will be glorified. Among those who are near me, I will be sanctified. Don Carson uh, said the following in one of the classes when we were going in seminary through the book of Acts. He said something of the following. This is what I jotted down from his, from his lecture. Where there's little judgment happening... It's a sign of spiritual death. The glory and presence of God will bring more judgment, at least on this side of eternity. And say, I, I, this is not what I believe about God, about the church. I have a hard time with this truth. I'd like to point you to 1 Peter chapter 4, verse 17. Peter inspired by the Spirit of the Lord, said, For it is time for the judgment to begin at the household of God. And if it begins with us, what will be the outcome for those who do not obey the gospel of God? Friends, if the church has only a human nature, if the church is primarily man-centered, we should have no fear at all, ever, of any judgment. But if the church has a divine nature to it, we should expect the judgment of God in the church. When we take the Lord's Supper, we read these solemn words. Let a person examine himself then, and so eat of the bread and drink of the cup. For anyone who eats and drinks without discerning the body, eats and drinks what? Judgment on himself. That is why many of you are weak and ill, and some have died. 
But if we judged ourselves truly, we would not be judged. But when we are judged by the Lord, we are disciplined so that we may not be condemned along with the world. Friends, if the church has a divine nature to it, it's not just a social nature. There are several key applications for us we must consider. One, God cares how people who carry his name live their lives. God cares how the people who carry his name live their lives. Second truth, second application we can point out is that church leaders should be concerned how those under their care live their lives. In verse 3, Peter took the initiative to confront Ananias. In verse 7, Peter took the initiative to pull Sapphira aside and talk to her. Friends, church leaders should be concerned how those living under their care live their lives. But a third implication is that the members of the church, Christians together, should be concerned and watch over one another to encourage one another and to help one another in how we live out the gospel. If the church has a divine nature to it, if the church is a place where a holy God dwells, from church leaders to church members, we should be concerned together how we live out the gospel. This means, dear friends, that my sin is not just my business. My sin is your business as well. It's the business of the church where God dwells. Why? Because God himself is concerned about sin. Friends, this means that we as Christians should place ourselves under the loving care of other believers and spiritual leaders who love us enough to watch over our spiritual lives and give us both encouragement and correction when we steer off the path of God. Why all this? Because the church is not just a bunch of people who gather in a club. The gathering of Christians is the gathering of God with his people. That's why. So that in the midst of the people, God dwells. And God is called by a holy name to dwell among that gathering. And the gathering is called to display the holy nature and character of God. Friends, because God is holy his people are called to be holy. And because God has bound himself with his people, we should be concerned of how we live. The ultimate focus of the church is not man, but God. Both Ananias and Sapphira missed this divine nature of the church. They thought that the primary players in the church are people. So they sinned deliberately because they missed the divine, nature, the divine nature of the church, and they missed the demonic nature of sin. God killed them both. How did the church react to this event, to this intervention of God? Twice we read, great fear. Great fear came upon them. Some of us are afraid of even using the phrase, the fear of God. So the idea that today in our churches we might need a greater fear of God, this idea seems strange to our ears or even counterproductive in our evangelism. If we focused on the fear of God, we are afraid the church won't grow. But read verse 14. Read verse 14. More than ever, believers were added to the Lord, multitudes of both men and women. More than ever. Friends, on the day of Pentecost, 3,000 people came to the Lord. But here in chapter 5, we're told that more than ever, more than on the day of Pentecost, more than ever, believers were added to the Lord. I love what Ian Murray said in his book, The Evangelical Holiness. He said, the fear of God is not only the beginning of wisdom, it should be the beginning of evangelism. Fear of God. It's not only the beginning of wisdom. It should be the beginning of evangelism. Oh, church, I pray. I pray that we as a church would grow in the fear 
of the Lord. To believe that God dwells among us and that his presence among us is a holy presence calling us to be holy. And let us say with the author of Hebrews, Therefore, let us be grateful for receiving a kingdom that cannot be shaken. And let us offer to God acceptable worship with reverence and awe, for our God is a consuming fire. Would you pray with me? God, if it was not for the blood of Christ that covered for our sins, our gathering into your presence this morning would trigger your judgment. But we stand here still alive. Because of the hope of the gospel. Oh Lord, I pray that you would impress upon our hearts your grace teaches us to have a deep view of our sin. That we would be grieved by it. That we would be afraid of it. That we would think of your holiness with awe and reverence and fear. Teach us to fear you as the gospel leads us. May your presence among us cleanse us of our sin, remove our sin. May you lead us to repentance. May you lead us to confess our sins by the power and promise of the gospel to forsake them and to throw ourselves in the arms of Christ. It is only through him and by him that we have the boldness to approach you with confidence. We pray that you would increase in us the fear of God so that we may cherish Christ in deeper ways. In his name we pray. Amen.